Welcome to the Petzinger Brothers Podcast. Kick back and enjoy the musings of James, John, David, Joseph, and Ben, five brothers raised decades ago on a dysfunctional farm in western Idaho. Welcome back to the Petzinger Brothers Podcast. Today is August 9th, 2009. This is episode 5. Today, when I say we are here, it's a little bit different from the past in that I'm here, this is James, and my mom has joined us today. Hi there. Hi, it's just me and my mom today. Uh, The other brothers are going to have the treat of listening to us discuss um, our youth and what it was like growing up uh, from mom's perspective, kind of a treat, a a guest, a guest celebrity on the podcast, so to speak. So mom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for uh, being kind enough to give us a little bit of time here on this grand experiment of ours. Um, you've listened to the podcast, the uh, episodes that we've done up to this point. What do you think? I've really enjoyed them. It's uh brought back wonderful memories, and it's also been very informative. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of fun to see and listen, I should say, listen to the boys' uh, take on their life, because I saw some of it differently, and to hear them talk about it just makes everything uh, more complete. So when you say you've learned a few things, I, I assume you're insinuating there were things you found out about that you were not aware of at the time. Uh, that's, that's true. There's, <laughs> there's a few details I'm still finding out as the decades pass. Yeah. Uh, there were times when I would find out, for example, at church in the morning what they'd done the night before or the day before, whether it was out, whether it was the scouts or whether it was with a church function or, or whether it was uh, out peeping, whatever, some someone at church would always tell me, "Oh, did you know?" Oh, those snitches. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the podcasts up to this point, uh, are there any specifics things that you had heard for the first time that? Uh, caught you off guard or that you found uh, particularly enlightening? Well, what's enlightening is, and and I must say, it really makes me feel, um, makes me feel really good to hear uh, the boys talk about one another and their relationships, no matter what, what was new, like with the cars and your experiences with some of the cars. I, I didn't know all of it. I knew some of it. I knew some of the things that happened to me with cars, but uh, generally speaking, young men don't complain. I mean, you boys didn't complain that much and when the cars would break down or um, there was a, a small accident or something. I'm not saying a serious accident, but a small accident. I didn't always know about it. I, I wasn't always informed. Unless, of course, Mr. Brown or... Another neighbor had to help you out of the canal or something. Then I would, you know, I'd find out. 
Yeah, that, that would be a little bit more difficult to hide, I suppose. There's a car in the canal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, one thing I remember growing up um, was people would always ask me, why does your mom have a boy's name? Um, and it had never occurred to me until, I guess, I got to school or when people started asking that question that Kenny could be anything but a girl's name. I hadn't, didn't know anybody named Kenny that was a boy. And the way you spell your name is certainly not the way that you typically see the name Kenny spelled, but it is a unique name. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on where that comes from and, and what the history behind that is. Well, my mother was expecting me uh, during World War II. And Dad was stationed uh, in Texas in training. And his outfit was about ready to be sent overseas. And uh, my uncle was in Grand Junction, Colorado, and he had a peach farm. And, uh, in fact, my mother used to live there at one time. Anyway, he took us in. I say us because uh, I was there. (laughs) And uh, when my mother had me, she named me after my uncle, who was Uncle Kenneth Gendrel, and uh, called me Kenny and spelled it with a very feminine twist to it, K-E-N-E-E. A lot of times people will say Kenny or Kenny, and mm-hmm. not, it's Kenny. And uh, that's, that's the history of it. He, he put us up until Dad was released, and... and uh, well, by released, I mean where his training was over, and uh, as it turned out, the war ended before his company or squadron got sent over, and uh, then he was stationed in Japan. Mm. Okay. And that's, and that's pretty much the way it went. Or actually, Panama first, and New Mexico, and then Japan, if I remember correctly. All right, so from New Mexico to Panama, or did I get that backward? Oh, that's all right. I I was confusing myself as well. First, we were stationed in Panama. I was about three years old at that time. And then we were stationed in New Mexico. And after that, uh, my dad was transferred to Japan. Okay, so post-World War II Japan, and how old were you at the time? I was probably five, six, seven, and eight and through there. And uh, post-war Japan was, for my age, absolutely remarkable. I really uh, loved being there as a child. Um, We had a lot of friends in Japan, and we uh, had an opportunity to go to Tachikawa and visit some friends. One of our friends was called uh, Skosh, which means little one, is that correct? Yeah, Skosh is just a little bit. Just a little bit, and she was. She was so petite. She was just really precious. She was one of uh, my dad's uh, secretaries on base. And uh, we visited her to her home, and they treated us 
so beautifully. It was just really quite pleasant. I have some really wonderful memories of, of uh, the friendships I made there. I could go on forever with stories. Do you want me to tell you one incident? Yeah. Okay. Um, this one incident happened, and to me, it just it describes my whole visit with Japan. My mother liked to sew for me because nothing fit me. Um, because I was tall and skinny and long-waisted and things just didn't work. So she was sewing things for me and had made a beautiful two-piece dress. It was a green dress with a white apron over it. And I had white shoes and white socks and was out playing at Scotia's home uh, with some children. And we were just having a good old time and I tripped and fell in a uh, in a mud puddle. Now, why I would trip when I'm wearing, you know, American shoes? <laughs> I don't ask me why I did that, but I, I guess it's because I was very clumsy when I was young. But these children ran off, and I thought, well, they're scared, and that's why they ran off because I fell and got dirty. And within just about a minute, by the time I got myself up and was brushing myself off, here came the children back, but they brought their mothers. And all the mama sons uh, brought me to one of the homes, and they gave me a little kimono to wear, and they washed my clothes, and they got it all clean. I don't know how they got it dry. I really don't. I don't know what procedure they had. But they got me all cleaned. They got the clothes dry and ironed. I got all dressed again. And then they took me back to Scotia's house. And you would not have known that I had fallen in a mud puddle. And that's just how very kind and sweet everyone was. They were always that way to us. So... I, I thought that was just a wonderful experience. I I always wanted to be, you know, um, the kind of person that if someone visited my country, I would be just as kind to them. You traveled to a lot of different places with with your father in the Air Force. Yeah. What after Japan? What were some of the other places that you uh, that you went to? Well, we we did a short period of time in George Air Base in California which has since been closed down. And then Dad was stationed uh, in northern Africa in what used to be uh, French Morocco. And the air base was Nusur, and it was a SAC air base. And uh, I was a teenager at that time. I really enjoyed that. It, it was a lot of fun to grow up there. I had my eyes open quite a bit to the culture. The culture was... Uh, really different from what I had seen before. And uh, I learned a lot by living off base for a couple of years. And then finally, it opened up on base, and we we were able to get some housing on base. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was okay. I loved living off base best. Yeah. <laughs> because you're, you're a lot closer to, to folks. And at that time, which it was in 1956, 
seven and eight and through there. Um, it was fairly friendly towards Americans at that time. It, it wasn't too bad. Um, they had just gotten uh, gotten rid of the French occupation not not too long before that, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the time frame is. I know that that um, after we first were stationed, I believe Eisenhower came and visited the, the air base at that time. And I may have things mixed up, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> I think I have things written down, so it's more appropriate if I were to read my history. But it was a lot of fun. Got lost in the Atlas Mountains with a friend of mine and her, her parents in a uh, Volkswagen. It was very exciting. We went through a, a little village of blue people, what they call blue people. They're the Torugs, and they wear dark, dark clothing that they say stain their skin, but I don't know if it does or not. So they're called the blue people. Then we went more exploring down these roads and up through the Atlas Mountains, and we went through a valley that looked uh, barren. And we couldn't tell uh, just by looking at it what was on the ground that was glistening and the ground looked like it was moving. And as we drove through the valley, it just exploded in locusts. just took off in this huge black cloud and circled around and uh, landed again when we reached the other side of the valley and started up into the mountains again. And the people that were living in the valley were still hoeing they were still working the land, and there was nothing there to work. Yeah, it was just amazing to see people still trying to grow things while the locust was still occupying the land. Wow, swarms of locusts. Yeah. That's something I don't think I've ever seen. It was the most amazing sight I've ever seen. I, You know, nobody had a camera. <laughs> right. Can you believe that? I mean, we were just out for a little drive down the country, and we ended up staying in uh, a little town called Agadir on the coast. We finally found our way out of out of the Atlas Mountains about midnight. We thought we were lost, but we we finally found our way out to a main highway off the dirt road and <clears throat> made our way into to a little town called Agadir, and about two weeks after we stayed in Agadir in a, in a hotel, they had a huge earthquake there that destroyed that whole town. Wow. And it happened during what's called uh, Ramadan, mm-hmm. uh, a very, very special uh, religious holiday for them, and they fast during the day. And so here were all these people just you know, suffering so because they would not eat or drink during during the day. And people were trying to give them first aid and, and hospitals were trying to treat them. And so it was really a rough time for those people. The hotel we stayed in collapsed, totally collapsed. And this was so, just two weeks after you had been there? Yeah, just two weeks after we'd been there. Wow. And uh, always felt bad because, you know, when, when you stay in a hotel or when you go for walks, you you feel 
and ownership. And you make friends with people. Right. You laugh with people and you, you uh, converse with people. And so even though we weren't uh, what you would call acquainted, you still feel bad. Right. There's st- you still formed a connection. Yes, we did. And uh, it, it was very depressing. It was just really awful. Yeah. I kind of... Terrible. I kind of know what you what you're talking about. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, maybe <clears throat> 12, 13 years ago, the earthquake in Kobe, Japan. Um, it was a fairly devastating earthquake, and I remember at the time, uh, the first thought through my mind was, you know, all the acquaintances that that I have in Japan, uh, people that I know. It, was anyone that I know personally affected, and and uh, and how would I ever know that? You know, how how will I find out if if somebody that I knew was actually affected by that, the devastation after that earthquake? Because if you've been to a place, you you form a a connection with that place and with the people who are there, even though you don't know them personally. And it, you not only form a connection with people, and but you form a connection with the land yeah. and everything about it. I mean, it's um, this way when when you see news reports of people um, that have experienced these horrible earthquakes, the loss of life is obvious, but they've also lost their home. They've lost part of their land because it, it has all changed. And you make a connection with the land. You make a connection not only with your your beloved family, but also with the land. And uh, you feel orphaned. I mean, that, that's that's the feeling I get when I watch them uh, on news reports. So, so after Morocco, uh, northern Africa, where where did your family go? <laughs> Um, we went to Mountain Home Air Force Base. Okay. Idaho. Okay. And, uh, as we were driving through Idaho and getting closer and closer to Mountain Home, I said, you know, as a typical teenager, I said, are we there? <laughs> and Dad said, uh, well, as a matter of fact, we are. And, uh, I looked around and all I saw with sagebrush. I did not see a mountain home. Right. You no, know, I expected I expected pine trees. I expected rivulets and, you know, flowers and and all of that. And here was all this sagebrush, all this barren emptiness. And I literally cried as we drove into Mountain Home Air Force Base. So, why do they why do they call it Mountain Home? I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I remember as we were growing up as a kid driving to Mountain Home to visit Grandpa and Grandma there off of the Air Force Base. Um, always wondering why do they call this place Mountain Home when there are no mountains around? Well. Um I'm not sure if Mountain Home is actually located in its 
original place. It, it may be. I don't know the true history of Mountain Home. Hmm. But, James, if you get in the car one hour and you are at Anderson Ranch Dam, you are in a canyon and you're not far from Stanley and you're only two hours away, less than that, from Sun Valley. That is, you know, that's what it took for me is for Dad to load us up, camp gear, and take off to the mountains for me to fall in love and with Idaho. And I have never, ever wanted to leave Idaho. It is the most remarkable state ever. And, of course, I know a lot of people feel that way about their home state. But Idaho has has the most beautiful, uh, diverse scenery you can ever see. I mean, it goes from desert to mountains. Uh, it has the Tetons on, on the east. It's got the sawtooths in the middle, which are granite. I, I, I assume that's granite rock, isn't it? Anyway, it's the most different kind of a mountain you'll ever want to see. And, uh, and then you've got the Iwahis to the west, which is called the Big Empty. It's just a fabulous, fabulous country. And there's places there that still have yet to be seen that most people have not been to. You know, Governor Evans uh, knew the value of Idaho. I, he, he truly did. Uh, while Dad was stationed at Mountain Home, uh, the Cuban crisis occurred. The Cuban Missile I, Crisis. I, I thought I'd just say a little bit about that. That was very, very interesting in that there are levels of, what do you call it, uh, emergencies on an air base. And the level of emergency that we received was the one where you packed your bag and you stood out in front of your house and you waited to be told whether a bus would come and pick you up and take you uh, to the mountains. And apparently there was a uh, there was a place in the mountains where you could go into for protection. Um, and this is because was, this is because the Air Force Base itself was a potential Soviet target, correct? Yes, it was very strategic. Right. And uh, I don't know the details of why it was strategic because that's something that nobody talks about. Sure. So what makes this so interesting is that everybody was saying goodbye to everyone. And I was standing out there on the curb with my mother. My dad wasn't there. He had to report. Right. Everyone had to stand. So then we got, um, then we got the siren to that said we didn't have to go to the mountains. It was pretty scary. Um, on that note, this was a 19... When did this happen? 1962 or 3? 1962. 1962. 1962 was the Cuban crisis. That was the year I graduated from high school. And in 1993... When um, Dad and I went to Russia, I was very curious about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and 
we went to church there one Sunday, and I went up to one of our uh, acquaintances there, and I had Dad ask him in Russian what he was doing during the Cuban crisis. And he, his eyes got really big, and he turned to me and spoke to me in Russian, and, and uh, Dad translated. He said uh, that it was amazing that I asked him that question. He said he used to work at a missile base, and he was one of the men who was assigned to push the buttons to set off the missiles. And he said he had never been so scared in his whole life. And so, of course, I told my story, and Dad translated to him what was happening during my, my life. And uh, it brought us that much closer together. If in 1962 anyone had said to me, guess what, you're going to make friends 30 years from now in Russia, I would have thought they were crazy. I never would have thought that could possibly happen. It was just such an amazing experience to go to Russia and make friends and to uh, to talk about these, talk about history and about what happened in America and what was happening to them and to cry about it and, and to hug each other. It was just, just an amazing thing. Wow. Yeah, one of these days we'll we'll definitely have to talk more about uh, that time that you and Dad spent in Russia. Because uh, I'm sure there are a lot of stories about that time that, that I haven't heard, that none of us have heard, really. Yes, there um, are. Yeah. I did write it down. I better find that book so I can, <laughs> so I can refresh my memory. I remember you telling me, uh, telling us about when you were in high school. I do believe this was a story that came out of Mountain Home. Um, and I don't know the details. All I remember are the highlights. It had something to do with a boy, a motorcycle, and a date that didn't quite go the right way. So... There were a lot of dates that didn't go the right way. But this this particular this particular date uh, was he, he, somebody owned a motorcycle and and uh, you you had oh oh my gosh that was in Morocco oh that was Morocco yeah that was that New Sewer Air Force Base and I had a crush on Clyde Tyler Clyde if you're out there and listening to this podcast. You're listening. I believe his name was Clyde Tyler. I, you know, I could be wrong, but I had that name in my mind. Anyway, it, I could be wrong, and I hope if I am wrong, you tell me. Um, anyway, he was such a handsome guy, and he was on the basketball team. He wasn't in those days. You didn't have to be six foot six to play good basketball. You know. And so he was average height. He had a push or push motorcycle or motorbike. Uh, I don't know the proper, whether it's bike or cycle, but it was German-made. 
And, oh, my goodness, on the way home from school, he stopped and offered me a ride on the back of his motorbike. I accepted. Now, at this time in the 60s, it was very popular to have very full skirts and to have this slip that had hundreds of ruffles underneath, which I did. So wait, you're wearing a poodle skirt with the ruffle slip? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And my socks and, and my loafers and everything. And so I get on the back, and I'm just smiling and laughing and thinking, oh, am I hot or what? Because we were passing all the kids walking home from school. School was on the air base, and we were headed towards our homes. And all of a sudden, everything came to a screeching halt. We looked down, and my slip got caught in his spokes and it ripped my slip off and went completely around his spokes. <laughs> so we had to stop. He was so embarrassed. He was embarrassed. I thought it was funny because, you know, it, it, was, a, it was funny. But then, you know, when I saw his embarrassment, because he he really was a BMOC, you know. Big man on campus. Yes. And for that to happen to his motorbike was... And he never talked to me after that. He wouldn't even look at me after that. Oh. So <laughs> that's when I learned that uh, boys and men have very, very uh, delicate, uh, what would you call it, kind of a ego right thing that it can be very delicate especially when they're teenagers so <laughs> well I thought it was pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> I helped him I mean I got down there in the dirt and was trying to help him and he just shooed me away so anyway that was funny wow so case, did you feel yeah. the slip coming oh, yeah. off I mean it so you felt oh, it just, yeah it just takes a second because you know you're you're zipping along you can't go faster than uh, 15 or 20 miles an hour right and on a motorbike that seems fast right um, and so just all of a sudden it went just zip, and it was gone <laughs> because it was all those little ruffles and I just undid all the ruffles Wow, amazing. Well, yeah, I remember you telling us that story. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I always imagined it in my mind, and, and I could just see it happening and seeing this, this, this back tire of a motorcycle just filled with white, white material. Actually, it was pink. <laughs> oh, it was pink. That <laughs> <laughs> was even worse. Oh, that is yeah, worse. It is terrible. I don't think I got embarrassed. I, You know, it was very seldom that I got embarrassed, um, and I'm not sure why that is. I just, uh, you'd think I would, but I didn't. It just was too funny. And a lot of times I discovered that uh, laughing at myself was pretty much what I did rather than being embarrassed. Sure. As far as uh, what it was like to to raise five boys, um, I know that's that's one of the questions that I would always get a lot. 
when I would tell people I have four brothers, uh, no sisters, the the reaction is almost universally the same. Oh, your poor mother. That's what people always say. Oh, your poor mother. Man, that must have been uh, uh, a trial for her, that kind of thing. Um, so in a nutshell, was it was it really as difficult as people uh, make it out to be? I'm not sure what they think difficult is. Um, for me, the whole the whole thing was an adventure. The hardest part of having children actually was uh, the first the first year of your life, James, and that had to do with oh my gosh, am I doing this right? Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm doing this right. That was the hard part. Once I got through that, it was, like I said, an adventure. It was a joy for me. When I look back, I don't remember ever, ever regretting having five sons. I don't ever remember not thinking, uh, oh, I don't want to get up in the morning. Never thought that. We just had too much fun. And I realized parts of our life was difficult. Mm-hmm. But um, it, to me, it was it was more like um, <clears throat> being pioneers. And I thought, what, what more fun could a young man have than being like pioneers? And in a way, that's kind of what we did. And yeah, it was a pretty minimalist lifestyle. We did. We did, but I don't think you guys were bored. I don't think any of you young men were ever bored. I mean, if you were, I, I, if you ever said, what can I do, I don't think I reacted well. Because, you know, there were so many things you could do. Even with a nail and a hammer. There were so many things you could <laughs> hammer that nail into. Right. Out out on our property, there was there was paint, there were nails, there were hammers, there were saws, there were rope, there was you name it. You had everything you could possibly use to do something with, to have fun with, to experiment with, and uh, it was fun laughing. It was fun. Uh, growing with my sons, and and I'll be the first to admit that as a parent, I felt like I learned as much from my sons as I hope you learned from your parents. Uh, I felt like I I grew up with my sons. I I don't believe I grew old. I, I, I still feel fairly young, even though I'm getting up there. I just had that uh, mental attitude that this was what I was born to do. On that note, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna say thank you very much, and um, we'll call it an evening. I can't think of a better way to to close it all out. It's it's been a pleasure, and I'm gonna do a mom thing and say I love you, son, and thank you for this opportunity. I. I'd be happy to talk anytime. Oh, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely be doing this again. Uh, so many other things that 
that uh, that we can talk about. So I'll definitely look forward to to having another one-on-one with you in the future. And I'm pretty certain that we will get feedback from listeners that say, hey, you need to bring your mom back. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it was it was a real honor to be part of it. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, thanks for your time. And uh, as always, a uh, thanks goes out to all of our listeners for spending a little bit of time listening to the Petzinger Brothers podcast. If you like it and uh, you enjoy listening to it, remember there are probably other people that you know who would enjoy it just as much. So spread the word. And until next week, uh, just want to say thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye, James.